Welcome to Fast Talk Femme with Julie Young and Dee Dee Berry. Our guest on today's episode is Ashley Molman Passio, a South African professional cyclist who rides for the UCI Women's Professional Cycling Team, AG Insurance, Sudal Quickstep. She is an Olympian, has won the South African National Championships multiple times, podiumed in the Commonwealth Games, the Strada Bianchi, the Giro d'Italia, won the Tour of Romandy World Tour Race, and she also won the first edition of the UCI Cycling Esports World Championships. In addition to her success on the bike, Ashley has a degree in chemical engineering from the Stellenbosch University, where she met her husband, a semi-professional ex-Terra athlete, Carl Passio. Carl and Ashley own Roca Corba Cycling, a cycling tour business that they operate from a 17th century estate in Porqueras, Spain, at the base of the infamous Roca Corba Ascent, where many of the best professionals in the world have trained and tested. Ashley is unique in the women's professional peloton in that she has balanced being an entrepreneur and business owner with her cycling and managed to succeed at both. Our discussion with Ashley will focus on how she balances training, racing, and the demands of being a small business owner. There are more female athletes in endurance sports than ever before. Yet until recently, female athletes simply followed advice and protocols that have been designed and tested on men. This is rapidly changing, and in our newest release from The Craft of Coaching with Joe Friel, we explore the art and science behind coaching female athletes with expert insights and advice from the likes of Dr. Stacy Sims, Allison Freeman, and Lauren Valet. Check out The Craft of Coaching, Module 12, Coaching Female Athletes at Fast Talk Labs today. Ashley, welcome to Fast Talk Femme. It's a real pleasure to have you join us and we appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule. I feel like we barely scratched the surface of your Paul Myers in our intro. And I'd like to start out by asking you what race performance you're most proud of. <laughs> That's a good question. It's, it's always an interesting question because there's, um, there's obviously different highlights at different um, phases of your career and they're all part of, of the growth. But I must say um, winning the Tour of Romandy um, at the end of last year uh, in October time was, was really a, a massive highlight for me. Um, you know, Annemiek van Fluten had been pretty much unbeaten uphill um, for, for quite some time and to finally be the, the one to, to break her winning streak and beat her up a, up a proper Swiss Alp um, was really something special. So that's a real highlight. Yeah, that was amazing. Yeah, quite an accomplishment. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you. You know, when I look back at the last like 20, 30 years of women's professional cycling, there haven't been a lot of South African female cyclists that have made it into the world tour. And like, I'd just be curious to hear about what your entry point was into the sport of cycling and racing, and also just get a sense of, of what the development system is like in South Africa for female cyclists. Yeah, so I, I got into cycling quite late um, in life in that I only discovered my talent uh, while I was studying at university. Um, so I have a kind of unconventional route um, into cycling, but this isn't um, uncommon um, in women's cycling, actually, to be honest. Um, so I first finished my degree, uh, so I'm a qualified chemical engineer, um, and it was through my husband, who I met at university, um, that I was introduced uh, to pro cycling. He he came from a triathlon background, 
Um, so when we first started dating at university, we were both studying engineering. Um, I came from more of a like hockey team sports background, hockey or, or tennis, these kind of sports. Um, and studying a, a very demanding degree like engineering, it was very difficult to, you know, to be part of a team um, and to make team practice times. Uh, so I started leaning towards um, Carl's interest, uh, which was still triathlon at the time and endurance sports. So um, I, I just jumped in the deep end and, and started trying to train with him. Naturally tried to get into triathlon um, initially, but yeah, I'm not a particularly fast swimmer. So that was a bit of an issue. Um, and then did a bit of duathlon and some half marathons and I kept injuring. So that's what eventually forced me to uh, focus on cycling and a, a decision I, I, I don't regret um, because it, it became uh, clear very quickly um, that that's where my talent uh, really um, lay. I have, you know, a really good power to weight ratio. Um, so I'm a small petite uh, person, but, um, you know, I go uphill really fast. Um, and so, yeah, Carl identified that and he really started, um, you know, encouraging me to take it more seriously. And it was really interesting because in the early days, um, he would say things like, oh, you, you're super talented. You could be world champion one day. And I thought he was barking mad, <laughs> you know, this, this guy telling me, I'm just, I'm just an ordinary person. And he's saying things like I can be world champion. But, you know, as I, as I was studying and going through this growth path in, in cycling, I suppose it started to become a more and more realistic goal, you know? So I first started off just racing local leagues um, in South Africa and racing amongst men, uh, because at that time, the woman, you know, we would start with the veteran men in the local league races. Um, and very quickly I, I was performing and winning these, these kind of races, then moved on, you know, to the more, you know, national scene, um, of racing, um, the national championships. And once again, very quickly, I rose to the top. And then in, in my final year of studies, I had the opportunity to, um, to come over to, to Europe to race a tour in France called the Tour of Ardèche, which um, still exists today. Um, and I came over and it, it wasn't a, a, a plain sailing first experience. Like I had a, quite a bad crash early on in the race. I had to chase back on a bike that was one size too big for me. So, you know, there were plenty of challenges, but somehow I'm, yeah, I like challenges and, um, the bug immediately, but that, um, Europe is the place where I want to be, um, to, you know, chase this goal of, you know, becoming one of the best cyclists in the world. I knew that if I stayed in South Africa and raced on the local scene, I could be the best in South Africa, um, but I would never be able to be competitive on an international level because in order to be competitive internationally in cycling, you have to be in Europe because that's where um, the racing happens um, at the highest level. So literally, as I um, finished my degree, um, at the end of 2009, my husband, well, Carl and I got married and we made our way over uh, to Europe to pursue a professional career um, in cycling. And yeah, now I'm, what, into my 13th season or is it already my 14th season? So I feel like a, a real, um, yeah, one of the older, uh, more experienced riders in the peloton now. I've been around for, for a long time, but also seen um, incredible developments in women's cycling. So from the time that I started to to today, um, many, many things have changed. But yes, the reality is that um, to date, I'm still the only, well, it's starting to change a little bit with South Africans, but um, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty much the only uh, proper professional um, cyclist um, in Europe. And 
that has to do a lot with the barriers that we face um, coming from a different continent, um, you know, having to be uh, based in Europe to be a pro. Um, I mean, first and foremost, it's visas, uh, which are a real issue. Um, so just to be able to be in Europe long enough um, to to improve and to be a professional is a is a challenge. And then, of course, it's leaving your home country, leaving your family, coming to a different continent, different languages, um, and trying uh, to find your way. Um, that makes it really, really complicated. Um, but yeah, we're starting to see um, that change. Um, but it's still going to take quite some time um, before you know we see more and more, um, especially female South Africans um, in the pro peloton. Ashley, when you moved to Europe, did you have a professional contract that first year? So I was really lucky um, in that uh, the local team. So when I first started cycling while I was studying, um, road cycling in South Africa was was really popular. It was actually booming. There was quite an active local racing scene. And so I managed to get myself onto yeah, what would be called a pro team in South Africa. And um, I actually got onto that team through power data. So, um, you know, initially when I started approaching teams saying, I want to be one of the best in the world. You know, I, I need to be on your team. I often found obstacles that are, well, you're studying, um, you live in Cape Town because most of the racing at the time happened um, in the north of South Africa, so Johannesburg. So all of these um, obstacles were used um, against me and I was super determined. So um, the team that I approached, I said, okay, well, we'll send you a, a power meter. At the time, um, it was a, a power meter based in the wheel. So they could send uh, the wheel to me. And they asked me to do a power test and they thought this was their way of getting out, you know, like, okay, well, once she's done this test, it will be an easy answer just to say, sorry, you're just not good enough. And I did the test and literally after sending the file to them, I think it was within five minutes um, that they phoned and they were like, okay, we're signing you. <laughs> so um, the way I got into cycling was very much on my power data. So my power to weight, um, it stood out immediately um, as, you know, having world-class potential. So I was really lucky that this pro team that I got into in South Africa, the guy who owned the team, um, he he was very forward thinking, you know, in that power data um, was really significant to him, which is quite abnormal because in, in pro cycling at that time, you know, the mentality was still quite old school. Um, so it was more around, you know, winning races or training many, many hours. They weren't always looking at, at power data, but he did. Um, and so he very quickly, uh, just like Carl, uh, realized my talent and my potential. And so he said he was on a mission basically to help me get to Europe because he, he recognized that I had world-class uh, potential. So the race that I did in, in France, he actually facilitated. So he um, managed to get our local South African team, club team, basically a start at the Tour of Ardèche. And um, during that tour, um, you know, we, we took up the opportunities to network. So it was during that tour in France that uh, we made a connection um, with a um, European or a, a Flemish team, a Belgium team called Lotto. I mean, they still exist today, actually. Um, and we managed to create a relationship that they took me on for the, uh, for the next year. However, at that point I was not paid to ride in Europe. So I was literally just given a spot, a bike, transport, all the infrastructure and support that I needed to, to race, but I wasn't uh, paid a salary. And so in the very early part of my career, I was basically riding or racing all year round in that I was trying to race the South African season, um, you know, in the Southern hemisphere, as well as the European season in the Northern Hemisphere. However, 
Um, my South African racing was basically paying the wage, you know, uh, all year round. So it was quite a, a, a challenging situation in in terms of like balancing or keeping sponsors that were based in South Africa happy, while m- most of my goals were actually in Europe. And that continued uh, for three years um, before, you know, racing for Lotto with this kind of contracted to a South African team, um, but racing um, both seasons. And then in 2014 was the first time that I got a contract with a, a European-based team based purely on my ability in Europe and paid um, a salary to race full-time uh, in Europe. Yeah, wow. That's amazing. It sounds like you had a lot of challenges to overcome. Yeah, there were a lot of challenges um, to overcome, that's for sure. But yeah, it's, it's great to see how women's cycling is evolving and it is becoming easier and easier for, you know, young girls to, to really aspire to be a pro um, cyclist and to see it as a career choice. Because, um, you know, when I was doing it, it was purely on passion. And some people, you know, at the time, many people thought uh, Carl, um, my husband and myself were super crazy because, you know, we had these, uh, you know, uh, really high regarded degrees, like we both, we both engineers, yet we, you know, put that aside and went on this crazy adventure uh, to Europe to to try be pros, pros and I was really we were doing it on passion and very little money um, at the time. But yeah, I mean I'm lucky um, enough that yeah the talent um, talent got me quite far and that it turned into a proper career. Um, and now it's becoming more and more viable. And definitely all the passion, hard work, and sacrifice um, is is being repaid um, at this point in time. Hey Ashley, it's great to finally meet you. And I've been really looking forward to our conversation today. And just listening to you talk, just thinking about, you know, the challenges you overcame. I always think it's interesting when people are so determined and they know where they want to go, they don't really see the challenges. They're just always looking for the solutions. And I just think that's an interesting trait. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. It seems to be a bit of a character trait on my part, to be honest. Um, you know, and every time I achieve a goal, then I set the next goal. And um, often they're super ambitious goals and there are plenty of people that think I'm I'm mad. But um, yeah, I, I tend to, to be a sucker for punishment or hard work. I don't know. Um, or just super determined. Um, but yeah, I really like going after these ambitious goals and, you know, joining, you know, getting over to Europe and first just over overcoming the obstacles of, you know, earning a proper wage, making it a viable career, but then very quickly also just the the challenges that faced women cycling as a whole, um, you know, started to to really intrigue me. Um, and I suppose it comes also a little bit from the engineering background. You know, essentially, our engineering is is um, a problem-solving mindset, right? So um, I identified also very quickly the, the problems within the sport and in particular within women cycling. And and started to become really ambitious to to help sort of influence change as well. And I suppose, you know, that kind of purpose or deeper purpose has also been a huge part of, of helping me overcome, um, you know, the the mental or physical challenges that that I've had to face as an athlete. So let's say injury or or um, you know, maybe missing goals or that type of thing, you know, having a deeper sense of purpose to to be a change maker um, in the industry as a whole has helped me um, to to stay motivated and, and focused even through um, these challenges. Yeah, and that makes perfect sense. Like you said, the engineering mindset of being a problem solver 
And for you, just jumping into that problem-solving mindset as these challenges arise. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you had kind of mentioned this, your first race at the Ardèche, and Didi and I are, are well aware of this because we spent a lot of time racing in Europe. And I think it's so hard to explain to people just how intensely like insane the racing is in Europe and just how different um, it is to be in that peloton. How was it for you integrating into the World Tour peloton? Yeah, again, an interesting one. I mean, I was definitely thrown into the deep end coming from South Africa where we have, you know, quite wide roads. We don't, uh, especially the roads that we race on, there isn't usually a lot of uh, road furniture or or um, obstacles. So it's, it's you know, if you're in a peloton maybe of, of 30 riders at most and it's really easy to move in the peloton or to come from the back to the front at any given moment, um, and then coming over to Europe, it's a totally different ball game. I mean, you're on narrow streets, lots of road furniture, pelotons are bigger, um, movement in the peloton um, is is totally different. And again, I'm lucky <laughs> that I'm, um, I don't know, I, I'm not afraid of challenges. So, um, you know, right from the onset, um, I was pushing uh, the the limits, you know, to to try and to learn as fast as I could. And okay, that came with consequences. So in the first um, year as a professional, I I broke my collarbone three times, <laughs> and that's obviously an indication that I was maybe pushing pushing the limits too much in terms of you know fighting for positioning um, and, and possibly coming short at times. Um, but it's all part of the learning curve, and I'm lucky in a way that you know that's part of my character to keep pushing to keep trying um and not to be afraid for example to be in a peloton because there are some pros um that come from you know America Canada Australia South Africa where you know they're thrown into the peloton in Europe and you know not growing up here and having all these obstacles to overcome moving in the peloton or the road furniture it really throws them off and and they struggle um to to overcome the fear um, and to become good at positioning. So I'm really lucky that I've always sort of uh, relished in, in the challenge um, and yeah, I never shied away uh, from, from obstacles or, or overcoming um, injury. Uh, but yeah, it, it, it requires um, yeah, a special mentality or mindset to want to keep pushing and trying to eventually find your space because there, there is a point when you've proven yourself somewhat. Um, and it's not necessarily winning a race. It's just proving your strength, um, being active in the races, um, you know, proving um, that that you you belong there that then kind of creates this respect from the other riders where maybe they, they will give you the space <laughs> more easily than cut you off. So it's kind of, it's quite a cutthroat environment as I'm sure you guys um, know. There's a pecking order um, and to work your way up that, that picking order, you know, sometimes, um, you know, takes, takes time, takes a lot of persistence, but once you get there, then it does become a little bit easier. Um, however, saying that things are changing nowadays, uh, with the new generation and, and the new way of thinking in that often us older riders are talking about how oh, the youngsters, they just don't respect us anymore. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's always changing and always evolving, um, within the peloton but yo, cycling is a tough sport, as you know. Um, it takes a lot of, yeah, resilience and and guts, you know, um, to to be there in the right moment um, in the races and and to be able to to get results or to play the role that that you're meant to play. What about culturally? Like, 
being a South African and signing with a Belgian team, did you speak Flemish at all? Or like, was that an adjustment? So I'm lucky enough that actually uh, Flemish or, or Dutch teams have been quite easy um, for me to to integrate um, into because South Africa, there's a lot of history with the Dutch. Um, so we have actually a, a, a language called Afrikaans, which is Dutch. Um, and it's actually closer to Flemish than what it is uh, to Dutch. Um, so it's much easier actually for me to integrate into those team environments because I can actually understand um a lot now at this point um, in my career. Um, I don't, I mean, I can speak, uh, it's my second language, Afrikaans or South African Dutch. Um, English is my first language, uh, but I can speak it. However, I don't really need to speak it. You know, as long as I can understand um, the Dutch or the Flemish, I, I get pretty far. Um, but yeah, I mean, Europe as a whole, like I live in Spain um, or in Catalonia <laughs> to be more precise. Um, but yeah, that's, that's totally different. You know, um, the Latin languages are a lot more complicated, uh, for me, uh, to pick up, um, you know, because I had no exposure to it at all, uh, growing up in South Africa. Um, so that, that's been a little bit more complex, but having said that it's also quite interesting, which I think is a little bit the same for, um, you know, Canada and, Amer and the Americas is that, um, you know, our heritage in South Africa is is often rooted um, in Europe or in the UK. Um, so in a way, coming over to, to Europe, or you actually do feel that you relate really well um, to the culture here, or I, that, that's my experience. Um, so actually it hasn't been that hard to integrate myself into the European um, culture or lifestyle. It's just more the Latin languages um, that were a challenge, um, especially initially. You know, Ashley, I was just thinking about when you're talking about the world tour and just integrating into that. And again, I think it's people just don't understand the difficulty, the challenges to succeed at that world tour level that, you know, you had talked about identifying through power numbers and we're seeing that more and more, but yet it's so much more than just hitting power numbers. And like you've been explaining and describing and painting this picture for us, you know, all the different things. It's the cultural things. It's the, you know, you're in an entirely new place. You're far from home. The Peloton's different. And again, I just think it's important for people to understand this, that, you know, when they're watching coverage on GCN, it's not as straightforward as just hitting power numbers. No, it's definitely not. And actually that's an interesting uh, point. And I'll, I'll come back to the power numbers, but yeah, I think that's what makes it even more complicated um, for for people from outside of, of Europe to be successful as as a pro because there's there's no hiding from the fact that um, that pro cycling is Eurocentric um, uh, to this day, and that's what makes it more and more difficult for us coming from you know other continents or so, especially the southern hemisphere or far like America, you know, all these continents so far away to make it because it's not an easy sport um, and we don't have our families uh, to, you know, to lean back on or, you know, after a hard race to go home and see your mom or your dad or, you know, have the support of parents or, or family to help you get through um, the challenges or to make you feel better. So, yeah, it, it, is, um, it is a lot harder. I mean, we're lucky in this day and age um, that, you know, through the internet and Zoom calls and, um, you know, WhatsApp and social media, it's way easy, easier to stay connected. So I think um, it's totally different uh, nowadays in that regard. At least we can stay connected. 
um, through through um, the internet and, and social media. Um, but yeah, it's not quite that simple, like especially making it, you know, I had to be quite um, innovative in how I, um, how my husband and I made it possible for us to live in Europe while our income was coming from South Africa. You know, we didn't have, um, you know, our parents' house to, to live in while we were trying to make it um, as a pro, you know, and that's where I'm very grateful that I had an engineering background because it helped me, um, you know, the problem solving mindset, putting sponsorship proposals together, you know, thinking of how I could give um, sponsors in South Africa exposure while I'm spending most of my time in Europe. Um, it helped me to do that. Um, but yeah, it's certainly not easy. And then going back to the power numbers, um, you know, Carl really said to me from the onset, like, you can be world champion. And it was, it, it has been quite a hard um, journey in that respect um, through my career in knowing that I have the talent, you know, I have the numbers, even, you know, in the, in the world tour races, I, I perform at the highest level, but then going to a world championships or an Olympic games where I don't have uh, the depth um, in support that the other nations do or the European nations do in that my teammates aren't able to support me or I don't have enough teammates uh, to support me. And then, you know, always fall, falling short um, of that goal of being world champion or Olympic champion, which for a very long time in women's cycling was really the pinnacle of, of the sport because these were the events that got the most attention. Now we're luckily getting more and more exposure um, in, in world tour races as well. So your goals with the trade team are, are more significant. Um, but then getting back to the power numbers and the, um, the COVID pandemic and the virtual world and in particular Zwift, um, that was also a really yeah, big experience for me. And when I mentioned that my, my biggest highlight is winning Tour of Romandy, actually very quickly in the back of my mind, I thought, hang on, there is another really big highlight. And that was winning the eSports World Championships in, in 2020. Because finally, I won that world title um, that Carl had spoken about for so many years. And why it was so significant is that on a platform like Swift, it is a little bit more about the numbers um, because obviously that's how the, how the platform works. And so for once in my career, lining up on the start line of a world champs, I really felt like, okay, I am the best here today. And it's going to take a lot for others to beat me because it came down to the numbers. Whereas on, in road cycling, there's so much more at play. You know, it's tactics, it's luck, it's um, teamwork, um, all these other things that add up to the result at the end of the day. And that's what makes the sport special, of course. Um, but uh, eSports and, and Zwift has also opened up a whole new world for me. Um, it's something I'm, I'm really proud of uh, to have, you know, overcome um, the adversity of the 2020 year and changed or basically, you know, used adversity to create opportunity for myself. And that was to win the world title and then also to take it further and to, you know, build community on Zwift um, to help me or to start acting on all these ideas that I had about growing women cycling, growing female participation um, through community. And um, so, yeah, I, I live a little bit of a parallel um, life. You know, I have this life in the virtual world and on Zwift and it's really important to me. But then at the same time, you know, I race in the real world um, and yeah, I have actually a cycling tourism business where I'm interacting obviously with, with people on a day-to-day -day basis um, in, in the cycling industry. Ashley, I've had a lot of empathy for you and Kazia Niwadama because I feel like I've watched you in the Olympics and the, the World Championships always being there 
and never having the team around you to 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 be able to strategically ride to win. So yeah, I, I understand the attraction of uh, the esports Zwift events, but you know, I was kind of curious. I, I'm not someone who has engaged much in indoor riding. I, like I'm very much an, an outdoors person, and and I do feel like it's a it's a different motivation. There's not always great crossover in terms of success riding and being able to punch the numbers indoors versus outdoors. And I'd be curious to know, are you able to hit the same numbers, power numbers indoors that you do outdoors? So this is an interesting one. So obviously with the COVID pandemic, um, I was also not a fan of indoor cycling. And the big reason why I wasn't a fan of it was this very fact that I couldn't get the same numbers on the indoor trainer as what I could outdoors. And I'm a bit of a perfectionist when it comes to training. So obviously, you know, indoors was off, was I only ever used it if it was bad weather um, and I had an interval session to do. And then the frustration of not being able to get the numbers um, that I would be able to get outdoors. So in other words, feeling like, you know, I, I hadn't um, fulfilled the full potential of the workout. That frustration is what kept me off um, the indoor trainer. But with the COVID pandemic and having a really hard lockdown in Spain, I, I had no option um, but to try to embrace uh, the virtual world or to sit on the couch and, and just lose all my fitness. <laughs> so, you know, I threw myself into the challenge and I very quickly realized that, yes, it's, it's, it's harder on the indoor trainer. And the reason that it's harder is because, you know, it's unnatural resistance. You're working against a resistance. So I like to think of it now um, or the way I explain it now is that it's almost like combining a gym workout with a, a bike ride, you know, so you, you're getting almost the same stimulus as you would like pushing weights or doing resistance work in the gym, but with a cycling action. Um, and so it takes time, but if you spend enough time on the indoor trainer, you can get the numbers. So obviously with the COVID pandemic, I was on the indoor trainer literally every day for five weeks um, and so I started to see, you know, in the beginning it was really hard. I couldn't get the numbers. Um, I was feeling frustrated. So my coach dropped uh, my threshold power just to make the numbers more achievable. But then as I adapted um, and after taking a, actually an easy week to actually allow the muscles to make the adaptation, um, I got back on the indoor trainer and I started getting um, the same numbers. So it's about um, making an adaptation to that stimulus or to that um, that unnatural resistance, which then allows you to reach those numbers. And now I have actually found a really good balance where I do feel that the indoor trainer makes me stronger outdoors um, because it really helps me, especially as a, a smaller, more petite rider. You know, I would often uh, really rely on power to weight or on high cadence to produce um, the numbers outdoors. Whereas now doing balancing indoor and outdoor riding, so still doing one, um, one intensity session a week, on the indoor trainer, it helps me to build my brute power or my torque, um, which then makes me more powerful and better at time trialing or at, at breaking away, um, you know, just holding um, a, a higher force uh, for a longer period of time. So they do complement each other, but you have to consistently, you know, do both. You can't expect to spend the whole summer riding outdoors and then come and be good on Zwift or racing on Zwift. You have to keep um, you know, using, using them both, um, on a weekly basis. And I suppose the other reason why I really opened my mind to, to Zwift was for the very reason that, you know, I know how hard it is as a South African to make it in Europe. Um, 
And I'm so far away from home now, you know, in terms of being able to mentor younger riders from South Africa. Um, it's impossible um, the way I'm living my life right now, unless I embrace a platform like Swift. So, um, you know, just it just opens up the world. All of a sudden, from my home in Spain, I can ride with um, young, young upcoming talent from South Africa and mentor them and help them or race with them on the same team. Um, so it was also for that reason that I really opened my mind uh, to the potential of Zwift. And also we have huge challenges in South Africa with road safety. And that's one of the reasons why road cycling has actually kind of died um, in the country. It's more mountain biking or gravel riding that's become popular because it's just too dangerous to be on the roads. Um, and so again, a platform like Zwift is a great place for um, young girls or women um, in South Africa to be able to to ride um, more regularly uh, without being worried about the dangers. Such a good silver lining story with COVID and Swift. Yeah. <laughs> Again, like, you know, trans, like as opposed to seeing something as this huge challenge, you just overcame it, figured out a solution and a huge blessing. Yeah. <laughs> and I also, yeah, I totally, you know, agree with you in terms of, of Zwift, I think, and it's funny, I think we all tend to be kind of an all or nothing, like, oh, I love the outdoors. I hate the trainer. I, I love the trainer. I hate the outdoors. And I think trying to help people come to that middle point, you know, what, what mm. you pointed out that there's benefits to both because, you know, I think there's also that mental benefit to the trainer of, of mentally embracing kind of that consistent resistance and that that load. Mm -hmm. But then I think super high quality workouts, entirely controlled. But then I think you get people, the other extreme, they just love the trainer and they never want to be outside. And mm -hmm. you're like, yeah, but you have to deal with undulations and wind and all those things that mentally, you know, can make the sensations challenging. Yeah. No, exactly. For me, the ultimate scenario is to find the balance of both um, because yeah, they have, um, they have benefits for, for very different reasons. Like I also love being outdoors and in the nature and the, and what we can see, um, by bicycle is amazing. All the people that we meet, uh, riding our bikes outdoors is, is really incredible. Um, but then as you say, I mean, Zwift is a great place um, to get a really focused workout, um, done, you know, it's really efficient or effective, especially for people living in cities or working, um, you know, you can get home from work and smash out a 45 minute session and you've really, um, you get a really good load or, um, from, from that session. Whereas if you had to go out, you know, you might have to stop and start with traffic lights before you can even do something. Um, and yeah, it takes much longer, uh, two hours to get, to get at least, um, the same load. So it, it's really effective. And then as a pro, what's also uh, really great about, um, doing, one interval session a week on, on Zwift is that it really allows you to kind of create the sort of neural pathways between like your mind and your body. I'm not sure if I'm explaining it hundred percent correctly with the right words, but, um, you know, when you're doing intervals outside, there's other distractions. And of course in racing, this, this will be the case, but in terms of building the muscle or the neural pathways or, um, uh, making your mind feel that it is capable of, of pushing those numbers or doing that effort. It's that kind of connection that you can create on Swift because you can go in and do your effort and really just focus on being in the zone as such, you know, when you're not thinking, you're just pushing, you know, um, and it's just that automatic connection between mind and body. Um, and I think that that's also a training stimulus to, to be honest. And, um, I believe it's also made me better.
outdoors. I think that's a great point about it's such a focused effort. And as you're riding, you can kind of play with different techniques. Like, what am I doing with my ankle, my Mm -hmm. foot position? How is that activating muscles? You know, just how are you most efficient? And you're right. It's in such an entirely focused effort. Yeah. You can get all of that feedback. Yeah. But then the ultimate is, you know, for those that get into cycling on a platform like Swift and then become almost like addicted to that platform and feel maybe fearful to go outside, you know, your ultimate scenario is that you want those people to then take that step and also go outside um, and and feel the freedom um, that riding outside gives you. Because I think that's what we what we all love about riding outdoors is that feeling of freedom. Um, so yeah, I mean, the best case scenario is always to find the balance. Yeah, it's mental health for sure. And I think riding outside really adds to that mental health. Yeah. Hi, listeners. We're so excited that you're here to check out Fast Talk Femme, a new podcast series that's all about the female endurance athlete. Here at Fast Talk Labs, we pride ourselves on being the pioneers of information and education in the endurance sports world for both athletes and coaches. If you like what you hear today, check out more at fasttalklabs.com. Ashley, I'm going to shift a little bit. Correct me, but I believe you've been at the World Tour 10 years now on, on World yeah. Tour teams. And you've you've alluded to this a little bit, but can you tell us through that 10 years what you've experienced and, and seen in terms of changes? Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, it's it's been quite an evolution um, in that, yeah, I mean, women's cycling has just become that much more professional um, over the years. So, you know, when I first came over to Europe, um, we had, there was no such thing as buses or even camper vans at the time. You know, it was just, you know, race, uh, race cars and maybe a slightly bigger vehicle. You know, um, when we had to change for, for a race, often we'd be on the, the street, you know, wrapping a towel around us, you know, trying to create some kind of privacy or finding a bathroom in a bar. Um, you know, to get changed, uh, to get ready for the race. Um, so that's just one small thing. I mean, even just the access to to equipment. You know, um, in the in the early years, it was quite frustrating for me as a small, a light climber. In that, often you know, your your women's specific bikes uh, were heavier um, or not as stiff. Um, you know, because it was just. I don't know why it was just a, a you know a mindset that a woman needs a more comfortable bike and not necessarily a speedy race bike you know so those kind of frustrations in in the early years um even just the frustration of not being taken seriously by male staff so if you have a male mechanic and you come as a woman and you say I feel something is wrong in my bottom bracket and they don't take you seriously <laughs> because oh you're a woman what do you know you know um, so all of that has really changed the the infrastructure. Now we have team buses. I mean, it's it's quite common. Um, you know, we we're on the best equipment. Um, like for example, now I'm on a team where there's a men's team. You know, the Sudol Quickstep team, and then the AG Insurance Sudol Quickstep. We the the women's team that um, partners with the men's team, and we have the same access to the same bikes, the same equipment, the same ceramic seat, speed bearings. Um, so that sort of level of of equality in in access um, to to the best, um, and then yeah, I think also we're just being taken more seriously um, as as women. You know, we we know our stuff. <laughs> you know, we know our equipment. Um, 
and exposure. I mean, that's been the big game changer. Um, so obviously in the early years, the reason why we didn't have, you know, the buses and the big budgets and yeah, the good salaries was because we weren't getting enough um, exposure. And then the exposure started coming in, but then, uh, you know, I kept bringing this up in interviews, like it's great to have exposure, but we need continuity of exposure because that's how you build the fan base. Um, because if not, you know, someone might come across your race and watch it and think it's really exciting. And then the next week think, oh, I want to watch, um, you know, the women's Flanders, but not be able to find it. Um, and so for a long time, women's cycling really relied on a diehard fan, fan base. You know, you really had to be 100% dedicated to finding um, out about the racing or where you could watch it or where you could follow it. Whereas now, you know, with GCN and Eurosport taking up women's cycling, it's it's readily available on a on a week to week basis, um, which has also made a huge difference. And then, of course, the Tour de, Fa Tour de France Femme of Swift last year has just elevated it to the next level um, because there's no doubt that the Tour de France is the biggest bike race um, in the world, and it's the one race other than the Olympic Games that everybody knows about. Um, and so, to finally have one. Uh, for the women's peloton has made such a big difference. Um, it was so evident from the onset, you know, lining up on the start line in Paris on the Champs-Élysées, how big that event was. And it's different to any other event. You know, the attention and the exposure um, is just on another level. So, yeah, it's incredible. More and more men's teams now, obviously, um, are feeling the pressure to, to take on women's teams, which again then is increasing the level in terms of infrastructure and even pay. Um, because, you know, uh, for men's teams, it's still, there's a big, big difference or discrepancy between salaries of your, your top male riders and salaries of top female riders, but it's, it's steadily, you know, increasing and growing, um, because the men's teams are adopting the women's teams. There's pros and cons, um, to that, of course, because if you have, um, your women's only teams, um, like let's even say SD Works, which is the top team in the world. And I, I wrote for them last year. They are actually struggling to match the salaries of the men's teams that are coming in with women's teams because the men's teams come in at a much higher starting point because the, the, um, you know, the salary of, of the domestiques in, in the male's peloton is the salary of the highest paid women's, um, women cyclists, for example, you know what I mean? So for them, they're just coming in um, at a much higher starting point, which then creates the challenge um, for, you know, the long-standing women's teams to be able to stay in the market, you know, and to, and to match it. So that's where, you know, there are pros and cons. Obviously, it's great to see how fast women's cycling is growing in this momentum that we're getting. But at the same time, you know, we have to be careful that, um, you know, the, that it's not too fast and that we don't lose um, some of of. The, the the teams or the races that have been around for years um, because they just can't keep up. So it's about kind of finding that balance. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it was really really wonderful nowadays. What what really warms my heart is the fact that young girls can watch women race um, more readily on TV because it's all about relatability. You know, um, if you can't if you can't see it, you can't be it. So um, you know, for them to be able to watch us race now and for it to now actually be in the minds of young girls that I want to be a bike racer one day and that that's actually a career. Um, I think that's, uh, that's really special. And that's, that's the big turning point for the sport. Yeah. I mean, I agree just from being on the outside, the exposure, I mean, I'm just addicted to GCN. Like I have it streaming all day when I'm, 
when I'm working. And I think it's just the way, as you said, it's the consistency of that and really having the opportunity to understand the characters and the personalities and, you know, really become, as you, you know, you said, associate with those writers and, and just, yeah, understand those stories has become so valuable to the growth of the sport. Definitely. Yeah. So you had mentioned your new team, AG Insurance. How is that going? Yeah, I'm loving the new team. Um, so yeah, it's a very ambitious project, which suits me um, very well as, you know, being an ambitious person myself. So um, Natasha Knaven or Natasha and Savas, um, Knaven, Savas was a, a professional cyclist himself. So was Natasha. Um, and uh, Natasha's had this dream. I mean, they have um, they have three daughters. So I suppose that's also part of part of the motivation, but they've had this dream uh, to, yeah, to positively influence women cycling in the way of creating a full pathway because what was or is still actually happening is that a lot of, um, there's a lot of focus on the world tour. Um, so, you know, because that's obviously where the exposure is. So, um, you know, new teams are starting and wanting world tour status or men's teams are, are um, adopting or creating women's teams and they want world tour status. Um, and so the AG insurance uh, project is really cool because it's it's the full pathway. We have a, a junior team, an under twenty three team, and an elite team. So we haven't yet got world tour status. Um, hopefully next year we will, but it hasn't really made a, um, all too much of a difference, to be honest. Um, but yeah, it's it's really great to see that full pathway. Um, and yeah, it's, it's really special just as a team. You know, I've never been part of a women's team that's this big, you know, because we have the, the junior, the under 23 and the elite um, team all, you know, all um, operating under under one structure. Um, so that's really special. It also means that, um, yeah, I do have quite a, a young team around me. Um, so I'm really um, on the team as as sort of a, a mentor as such or to, to help the youngsters grow. And that also, you know, resonates really well from, with me as sort of a purpose-driven um, athlete. So I really like to be able to, to uh, yeah, play a role in in helping others realize uh, their full potential. And that was the big reason why I made the shift uh, to this team. I was actually uh, planning to retire. Um, so I thought that signing with SD Works for two years was, you know, the last contract I was going to sign. And um, then... You know, if if I had to continue just purely um, in the SD Works outfit, maybe I, I would have retired because I was feeling less motivated in that super highly aggressive um, in, environment. You know, where you know we were a team of of all the strongest riders, so um, you're not only just starting on the start line to to uh, beat the other teams, you're almost starting to beat your own team members. It, it was a really weird environment, to be honest. Um, and and it works for some, but in my case, it 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 wasn't really ticking the boxes um, for me in terms of motivation. So when this opportunity came up to join the AG Insurance um, Sudol Quickstep team and with the ambitions that Natasha and Savas had and the role that I could play, um, which to me had had more more purpose, um, it was a no-brainer uh, to continue. And I'm really loving um, being there. Of course, it means sometimes I am isolated because I don't necessarily have the strongest team around me. Um, but I'm still happy with that because um, I, I, I take a lot more satisfaction um, out of being part of a project where there is, you know, there's um, growth or, or you're creating somewhat of a legacy or you're positively influencing others than just being part of an, of an environment where all I'm thinking about is winning races myself. And I think 
to me, it seems that there's a big difference in the team environment based on the motivation of creating that women's team. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you said here that there's some really strong motivations in terms of creating that full pathway versus a men's team that creates a women's team just as a kind of afterthought for lack of a better word or because it's the politically correct thing to do. Mm-hmm. So I think it seems to me the motives of the creation of the team can really create the positive environment. Yeah, definitely. But I agree with you. Like, I think for you, like, as you said, there's a sense of purpose and I think that's really energizing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's actually really interesting because, um, you know, Patrick Lefebvre doesn't necessarily have the best reputation when it comes to um, the things he's he's said about uh, women cycling. But it's been really interesting being part of this team. You know, initially I was a little bit nervous because I thought, you know, signing with a team that's owned by Patrick Lefebvre, um, you know, am I damaging my my own reputation um, and what I stand for um, by associating myself um, with his name? But, you know, what continued, as you know, I'm not shy to take up a challenge. And, you know, what continued to motivate me is that, you know, the the um, the ambition of the team or the purpose of the team still aligns um, with me as a person. And then it's been interesting actually you know, being on the inside and actually getting to know Patrick, um, because he's very different to in person to the way he's painted um, in in the media. Um, there's no doubt he does he doesn't really have the best way with words, <laughs> so um, he doesn't always find the best way to to say something. And then uh, the media generally likes to latch on to certain uh, parts of what he said, uh, which are often controversial, rather than um, giving the whole picture of what he said. Um, and so then that's often what comes across really negative um, in the media. There's no doubt that, that he's a businessman and and that he, you know, he's, he didn't want to just create a women's team for the sake of creating a women's team to keep his sponsors happy or or to do the politically correct thing. He wanted to create a women's team that could uh, perform at the, at the highest level or be as competitive as his men's team, but also that was thinking about development as well. You know, he didn't want to just you know, put the money in, get the best riders and, and go straight into the world tour because that's not um, sustainable. So he actually applied his business mindset um, to the whole project um, in that, you know, cre- creating sustainability within women's cycling as well. And yeah, getting to know him um, actually as the person, you know, I realized that he has a good heart and he really means well. Um, and he really does want to see um, his women's team, you know, uh, getting better and better with the years and, and uh, being properly sustainable uh, within a cycling context. So yeah, it's, it's been a, it's been a good experience all around. Ashley, it's interesting to hear your insight on Patrick. I uh, obviously have struggled to listen to some of the things he said in the media over the years and was actually really surprised that he got behind a women's team. But that said, Service Canavan is a former teammate of my husband's and I, I raced with Natasha and I, I know the both of, both of them. And, um, really respect them. And it's good that they're leading the team because mm-hmm. I think their heart's in the right place. And I think they're going to do a great job with development. Yeah, definitely. They're, uh, they're good people. Ashley, I want to shift the conversation a little bit now to talk about your business. I've ridden my bike by your estate at the base of Roca Corba in Spain many times. And I hope one day I'm going to get to visit it, but I haven't yet. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Like when you purchased it and also just whether you purchased it initially with the intention of running a bike business out of it? Yeah. So my husband, Carl, and I moved to the Girona area in 2012. 
Um, so when we initially moved over to Europe, we, we went to Italy because uh, Carl has Italian heritage. So we actually both have Italian passports now. Um, I got uh, the passport through marriage, but him through heritage. And so when we first made uh, the move over to Europe, it was a natural sort of tendency to for him to want to explore um, his Italian roots. So that's where we landed. But um, we only really lasted two years um, in Italy. It was north of Italy, really beautiful. I mean, Lago Maggiore, Varese um, area, very, very beautiful. But we never really um, managed to integrate ourselves into the community in, in Italy because you know, Italians are quite patriotic. If you don't speak the language fluently or if you don't eat exactly how they eat, um, then you're just weird. Uh, so, yeah, it just wasn't a very healthy lifestyle. We were basically full-time tourists um, in Italy and, you know, that that's great for a certain period of time, but at some point you need to kind of feel like you're a normal person and integrate into the community. So we started looking, um, elsewhere and we came across Girona uh, through social media, I suppose, through obviously hearing about the pros that were living in Girona, the city, um, itself. Um, and it seemed like a good option, but the way that I sold it actually to Carl, because he, a lot of people have this, um, this kind of vision of Spain as being super dry, like big open spaces, you know, unattractive white buildings. And that was Carl's sort of vision of Spain. So when I said, how about we move to Spain? He was very much against it. Um, but luckily I managed to, to come across Banyoles with the lake. Um, and I came across a, a Masia similar to ours called uh, Girona cycling. Um, and I got in touch with them and that's how I managed to kind of convince Carl to give it a try, to come over for a couple of months and, and to give it a go. And so we moved to Banyoles from the onset, um, through, through this, um, you know, cycling tourism business in the area that we had connected with. We, um, they helped us to find an apartment. Um, and so from the onset, we, we moved to Banyoles and we've never actually lived in, um, Girona town, but because our initial experience here was actually through a cycling tourism business and a country estate, um, from the onset that that was quite attractive, you know, I grew up actually on, um, on a farm in South Africa. So that kind of lifestyle, you know, both Carl and I are not super big city people. We quite like, um, you know, the outdoors, a little bit, you know, nature and not necessarily the hustle and bustle of, of the city. So from the onset that intrigued us, you know, the whole business, um, aspect of, of cycling tourism. Um, but at first, you know, the focus was very much on, on pro cycling. And I, I certainly didn't have the means, uh, to buy a, a Masia or a, a Catalan estate. Um, in the early parts of, of my career. But as we, as we were living in the area, we saw all these beautiful country estates and we started thinking a little bit about what is life after pro cycling because it started to become less and less feasible for us to go back to South Africa in that both of us had not practiced as engineers. Um, so to go back and to try and reignite our engineering degree, um, yeah, our engineering degrees would, you know, we'd be starting at the bottom um, it wouldn't necessarily, it would possibly mean wasted time, you know, um, in, in the pro cycling world. So we started thinking, how can we use, um, the experience and the contacts and the networks that we've built, uh, through, through pro cycling to create something for ourselves, um, for the future. And that's when we started to entertain the idea of, um, cycling tourism and, um, and purchasing a property in the area. And then my, uh, big, thinking blue sky vision uh, mindset was also at play here because I thought, well, 
Um, cycling is such a disconnected industry in that, you know, the pro sport um, and cycling tourism and the industry brands, you know, they, 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 they operate quite um, independently and that there isn't always a way that brings it all quite nicely together. And so that's where, you know, my, my engineering mindset came in again and said, well, you know, if I'm a pro cyclist and we're running a cycling tourism business, well, that's a way of creating the connection. Because at the time, uh, 2018, when we when we bought the property, a woman cycling was making good steps in exposure, but we still didn't have the continuity of exposure that we have today. So there was also that thinking that, you know, to engage a female fan base, you know, it's more likely that if a woman meets me as a pro and gets to kind of know who I am, that they'd make more effort. Um, to follow my career or to to become a fan of the sport. So that was the one thing. And then the other thing was um, that by me as a pro um, being actively part of the cycling tourism business, it also um, enabled the opportunity to give um, the brands that I'm associated with access to the consumer. So our rental bike fleet is a specialized rental bike fleet, for example, um, and so it was all those things, you know, that led us uh, down the path of exploring um, a business. Um, but yeah, I mean, to be totally honest, as a female pro, I don't have uh, financial means uh, to to buy an estate um, like this all myself. So, you know, it meant um, attracting investors, um, having a proper business plan. We were very lucky to come across um, this property, the first property, literally, that we looked at. So we got in touch with an estate agent when we started entertaining um, the idea and um, we actually suggested a couple of other properties that we'd seen online. And when we met her, she said, well, there's a property that's just come on the market, which is maybe a little bit bigger than what you what you had in mind. But I have to take you to it because I think um, it suits your uh, vision really well. And she brought us here to Can Campulia, which is the historical name of the property. And I walked under the archway because there's a there's like a wall that surrounds and connects two buildings and you walk under an archway into a um, central courtyard, a central stone courtyard um, with a pond in it. And I, it, it didn't look anything like it does today because it was very overgrown. The pond had no water in it. It was filled with reeds. Um, even the stones in the courtyard were overgrown with grass. But I walked under that archway and there was just, I just knew it. Like there was, there was just a feeling here um, that made me realize, okay, this is the place we have to make it happen. Um, and so, yeah, we put the business plan together. We attracted the investors. We bought the property in, in 2018. Um, and yeah, it's something that we decided to, to grow sort of more sustainably. Um, so there are actually three villas, um, on site, two of which were like barns or workers cottages, um, that had been renovated, um, 10 years prior. So they were, um, closer to being, um, you know, uh, um, suitable uh, to to hosting guests. So they were the ones that we focused on first. And then we have a big manor house or a big farmhouse, uh, which we've only just recently um, converted the ground floor to have uh, five ensuite guest rooms. Um, so yeah, it's still, it's a work in progress. Um, it changes every year. We add something new. The next thing is a, is a proper restaurant space. Um, so yeah, it's an exciting project and yeah, we're very, very grateful to have it. Ashley, how has it been for you owning and operating the business with your professional cycling career? Like, is it harder for you to fit in your training now? And I mean, you <laughs> must be traveling quite a bit as well. So I'd be curious to know how you're balancing all that. Yeah. So that's also an interesting, um, yeah, point is that uh, early in my career, um, I had a lot of criticism, uh, from, 
directors, sportifs or coaches that I really needed to switch off my mind and just focus on cycling um, and that I was too distracted. Um, but in 2018, actually, um, oh no, hang on, 2015 is when I joined the team, sorry. Um, but the Cervelo Bigler team, um, led by Thomas Campana, who's also quite a controversial character um, in the cycling world, but I, I actually worked pretty well with him. Um, because he kind of sees outside the box, um, you know, he, he, he really makes the effort to understand his athletes and what makes them tick. And so when I started um, on the team with Thomas Campana, he very quickly realized um, that I'm not just a normal athlete that can, you know, just ride and focus on my training. Um, the sort of mental or the, you know, my brain and my problem solving mindset um, is part of who I am. Um, and so he was the first, um, you know, cycling, um, character, you know, um, in terms of a director sportif that encouraged me, um, to keep, you know, talking. So he would, he, we would have long conversations in, in the car, you know, between Giro stages about how to solve the problems of women cycling. Um, and he was really the first one who, who made me feel that it was okay <laughs> to, to, you know, have both. Um, to be the pro athlete um, that's looking at performing at their best, but also entertaining um, my 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 mind and what I was thinking about. Um, and so, yeah, I founded or we started the business Rock Corbett Cycling in 2018 while I was still uh, racing for Thomas Campana. And so I think it definitely helped that um, he understood me and that he encouraged me. Um, and, you know, he knew how to help me also to know when I was doing too much or when I needed to to rein it in. Um, so yeah, I, that was, you know, the first year being on his team and him really understanding me is what allowed me to do it. But there has even been times in the recent years. So part of the reason why I was thinking of retiring in, in, um, last year is that I thought, well, if I really want to immerse myself in the rock Corbett cycling business, um, I need to give up my pro career because I, I can't do both at the same time. But through the years and through operating the business, obviously I have a great team around me at Rockcorba Cycling in that the business operates absolutely perfectly well without me being here. Um, so we've employed great staff. My husband is very much involved in the business. Um, so I can really rely that things run really well while I'm not here. But I bring sort of like a, a um, that problem-solving sort of bigger mindset to the business. So I'm more involved on like a strategic level or maybe I come back after a period of time of being away and then I have a more critical eye and I notice some small problems and I'll raise them and say, okay, we need to fix these problems. Um, and then I can go away again and feel totally happy um, that the business is, is operating perfectly well without me. So I've managed to find a way of sort of compartmentalizing. I suppose that's the only way um, to describe it really is that, um, you know, I, I, I have to have boxes and sometimes I need to put something in the box and close it while I go away to racing and then only open up the box again um, when I come back. So I'm learning to really be in the moment. So when I'm at, away with the team racing, then I'm away with the team racing and that's all I'm thinking about. But when I'm at home, then maybe I'm juggling um, a couple of different things. And hence, you know, like I said to you, oh, I've been running from one thing to the next all day. So, you know, I have a schedule and I try to stick to it um, as closely as I can, but it means finishing a training ride, going straight into a meeting, then going straight to the massage, finishing a massage, going to another meeting, then going on to a podcast. So sometimes my days are quite full, um, but I never neglect training, um, massage, eating well, 
And then sometimes going away for racing is almost like a holiday for me. So it's a little bit weird. Um, you know, most people think, okay, I'm going away to work now. Whereas I'm like, oh, I'm going on holiday. And that almost is also quite good for the, for me in terms of um, taking off the pressure with the racing, because it's more like, oh, I'm going on holiday. I'm going to go and enjoy myself. I'm going to go ride my bike. I'm, uh, you know, push myself obviously as far as I can. Um, but it's not that I've been thinking about how I'm going to win the race every second of the day for for the last three weeks, you know, I perform better by sort of just being in the moment, um, in the racing rather than thinking about it too much, if that makes sense. Ashley, it sounds like you've organized yourself really well. <laughs> I know it's not easy. I run a small business as well. And, you know, it feels like you're constantly juggling. So you really have to have the right mindset for it and be able to multitask when you need to multitask and compartmentalize when you need to compartmentalize. And it sounds like you have some strong skills in that regard. <laughs> Thank so, you. Yeah. And I know everyone thinks about this differently or has different opinions. Like you had said, the other directors that have that you've worked with have felt like you needed more to be more singularly focused. But I personally, and I think Didi feels the same, like having... I don't know, who can argue against balance? Like, I think we're all mm -hmm. striving to have balance in our life. And as you said, then, you know, you're not obsessing. You're like, mm -hmm. you know, you're focusing on it when it matters. And and I also feel that, in my opinion, it's great to know you have other options in life. And when cycling's not going great, you know, the bike tour company is going great. You know, just mm -hmm. to have these other things that you don't get drawn down by just one thing. Exactly. That's how I feel. And I feel sometimes, you know, pro cycling is a little bit of a contradiction really, because, um, we are encouraged, um, to be very, um, yeah, very structured, um, you know, to, to run according to, you know, routine, you know, train the same time every day, eat the same things, you know, um, all of this is encouraged in our preparation to racing. Um, but yet, in the racing, we have to be super flexible because nothing ever goes according to plan. <laughs> so to me, it's quite a contradiction. And I've, I've seen it firsthand now, you know, in terms of uh, being part of, obviously part of pro cycling and the teams, but being um, yeah, a minority in that, you know, I'm doing more than one thing um, at the same time. And then we'll have, let's say we have the spring classics and all the races are starting at around 11 o'clock in the morning and everyone gets into that habit of, okay, we're starting at 11. So we eat breakfast at nine and we only eat one meal before we race. And then suddenly you go from the spring classics to, um, to racing in Spain, for example, because usually we race a lot in Spain in May and suddenly the races are starting at three or four in the afternoon. And I've just, you know, sitting around a breakfast table and hearing my teammates go, oh, I don't know how to handle this. How, what should I eat? Like, oh, should I eat breakfast and lunch? what am I going to eat for lunch? You know, like they just don't know how to handle all these changes. And I think, oh, come on, you know, like, you know, just make a plan. Um, you know, eat your normal lunch or eat, just eat rice rather than rice with, with chicken. I don't know. Um, but they don't seem to always be very, um, uh, flexible, you know, in, in, in that context. And I think to myself that that's quite a contradiction. So, I feel like my best performances, and it has, my, my best performances have come since I've been encouraged uh, to be more balanced. Um, and so I definitely believe um, that there's, there's a lot of positives in, in being balanced. And it also, it takes the pressure off and it gives you the opportunity to feel like there is something beyond cycling. Because when you just immerse yourself in pro cycling and it's all you do, and that's actually the thing, is not to allow 
um, your pro sport to define you because if it defines you, then that be- can become a huge, a really big problem later on. And especially when you're not performing. That's such a great point about the contrast of training to racing and, you know, just being flexible and yeah, not, not making something more than it is. And I would imagine too, that's, you've really developed that ability to kind of go with the flow through your experience and all that you've, you know, learned about yourself as an athlete. But I also think when I hear you talk, it's also important that no matter what we're talking about, whether it's training, nutrition, lifestyle, like you figure out what works best for you, as opposed to someone telling you in absolutes, like this is what you should be doing. And I think, you know, finding that thing that, or that way of living that really makes you tick and thrive. And it sounds like you figured that out. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think that's no, no one size fits all. And I think sometimes that's, yeah, it can be a problem with, you know, social media and just society nowadays is that we're almost, you know, led to believe through what we see or consume on a day-to-day basis that you need to be more like this or more like that. Um, or so-and-so is perfect and, or, but what is perfect? And each, each person is, is very different. And so, yeah, I'm definitely a believer that you need to figure out what works best for you. Um, and that, that applies to all parts of life. I mean, even within like a pro cycling context, what works for me in terms of nutrition is not necessarily going to work uh, for my teammates. So yeah, it's just figuring we're all individual and we're all unique. So it's figuring out um, what makes us tick. Hey, I just want to go one more question about your business because I'm, I bet our listeners would love to, you know, potentially partake in your tours. And can you let us know, like, what does a tour look like? Yeah. So, I mean, we have quite an interesting model in that, um, you know, we're not just a cycling tourism business. We, we also, um, you know, we own the accommodation. So uh, we're, you know, a, a, a hotel as such as well. So we can kind of be quite flexible in that we organize, you know, um, tours on set dates um, and we'll usually, um, you know, have more than one offering. So it could be a, a tour that focuses more on climbing or, you know, the best of Girona. So, you know, doing a bit of the coast plus climbing and maybe two days in Girona and three days with us. You know, we, we have a couple of different um, offers, but then we also do bespoke Um so, for example, other touring companies or groups or clubs um, who want to come out and just use our accommodation and do all the other stuff themselves, we accommodate for that. Or we can do some kind of hybrid offering um, where you use accommodation in our rental bikes, um, but you do your own guiding or you're using uh, GPX files or we can provide um, guides. So we, we're actually really, really flexible and we can adapt to, to everybody's needs, um, whether that's, you know, joining one of our tours on set dates or whether we, um, you know, come up with the best solution to meet, to meet our customers' needs, whether it's an individual, a couple or a group. Love it. Ashley, what are your plans for the rest of the season? So, yeah, tomorrow I head off um, to do a race, a three-day stage race in um, the Pyrenees. Um, in the perfect location to do route recon for uh, the Tour de Femme of Exwift. So we'll stay on afterwards uh, to recon the Tourmalet stage and uh, the time trial in Pau um, and also stage four um, in the Rodez region. Um, and then I come home for another week and then I head up uh, to Altitude, um, which I do also in the Pyrenees. So uh, Font Romeo, uh, close to Andorra. 
Um, and then the Tour de Femme of X-Wift is the next really big goal. Um, and shortly after that is also the World Championships, which is a little bit new this year. Uh, the World Champs is in August um, in, in Glasgow. So that's kind of as far as I can see right now. I'm not 100% sure exactly what I'm racing after that um, because all the focus is on the, the Tour de Femme. Yeah, that makes sense. Ashley, to, to wrap up today, I'd like to ask you for an endurance athlete who's trying to balance work with an intense training schedule, if you were to give them three pieces of advice, what would it be? Well, not to underestimate uh, your work schedule um, and the toll that it takes on your body. Um, so I would always advise to to try to do you know more intense or quality work um, in the week and to do the longer rides on the weekend um, to allow for a little bit more um, recovery um, in in the week time. Um, I would say. Um, yeah, it's also really important to listen to your body. Um, because I think that's often a mistake we make is that the day, the moment you take a rest day, you, you think it's the end of the world. Um, but rest is what makes us stronger in inevitably training is only the potential for fitness. Um, resting is what makes us fit. So not to underestimate uh, rest. Um, and then, yeah, I would say, I suppose planning ahead, um, you know, um, is also, really useful if you if you're busy but you're trying to fit in a lot of training and especially planning ahead around um food actually to be honest because don't underestimate the importance of of nutrition um and supporting your body uh to fuel for the ride and then to recover after the ride so if you don't have a lot of time um then maybe you know to pick one day of the week where you can maybe pre-prep um some food uh so that you know when you get back uh, from work and you've just done, uh, you know, a late afternoon session, you don't have to worry too much about spending time on, on cooking dinner or, you know, just ordering in, um, you know, fast food because you don't have time. So maybe to, to think a little bit in advance and plan food in advance. Those are great nuggets of advice. Thanks. Great quotes, Ashley. And I loved your quote about rest. That is, yep. I want, I'm going to, I'm going to quote that on my motivation Monday. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> Ashley, it's really been a pleasure speaking with you today. And we wish you luck the rest of the season. We'll be cheering you on during the Tour de France Femme of Exit Wift and, uh, and the World Championships. Yeah. So I hope your season continues to go well. And uh, yeah, like I said, I hope to be able to visit you in Spain one day. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Didi. Thanks, Julie. That was another episode of Fast Talk Femme. Subscribe to Fast Talk Femme wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcasts. Be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk Femme are those of the individual. As always, we love your feedback and any thoughts you have on topics and guests that may be of interest for you. Get in touch via social. You can find Fast Talk Labs on Twitter and Instagram at Fast Talk Labs, where you'll also find all of our episodes. You can also check them out on the web at fasttalklabs.com. For Ashley Molman and Dee Dee Berry, I'm Julie Young. Thanks for listening. <laughs>